an overview of my time in court as the NRA's corruption trial reached closing arguments. Plus, my trip to Pennsylvania to see Donald Trump speak at the NRA Great American Outdoor Show. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. No, the devil's got no All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also a CNN contributor and the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter today if you want to keep up to date with what's going on with guns in America. You get one email a week. We don't clutter your inbox, and it keeps you in the know about what's happening across the country in a sober, serious way that you're really not going to find anywhere else uh, in an independent publication where the writers are actually informed about firearms, another thing fairly rare to find in, uh, in media these days, uh, and also informed about politics is another thing not always so common in the uh, gun world, writing about uh, these issues. So I would encourage you to go over and sign up for that newsletter. Of course, if you uh, want to help support our reporting and get access to hundreds of exclusive pieces of reporting and analysis, you can buy a membership as well. Reload members are how we fund what we do here. That is that is who backs us. We don't have a corporate owner or some big dollar billionaire backing the, the reload. I can tell you that much. Um, so we really do need the membership to uh, help us produce this kind of reporting, especially <clears throat> what we're going to be talking about today, which is on the ground shoe leather style journalism where we actually travel to the thing that we're going to cover uh, because this week uh, we don't, I don't have an uh, inter- I don't have a guest. In fact, I guess I'll be the guest and uh, contributing writer Jake Fogelman here with us uh, will be sort of the interviewer, right? <laughs> How you doing, Jake? I'm doing good. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm on the front half of the podcast this week for all of our yes. regular listeners. They probably used to see me during the the news update, but this week I get to interview you about, as you pointed out, your your actual shoe leather on the ground reporting for this. Pretty big deal, this NRA trial that's been going on, and it's coming close to an end here. Yeah, the the NRA trial, I was up in Manhattan covering that. Uh, Closing arguments were this week. Uh, The jury is in deliberations now. They didn't produce a verdict yet, and I think they will for a little while, to be honest with you, because it's a fairly complex case. But uh, And based on some of the stuff that happened on Friday when I was in the courtroom, uh, you know, waiting to see what the jury was going to do. They asked a few questions. We'll go over all that stuff. Uh, and then, of course, I was also up in Pennsylvania at the Great American Outdoor Show, where uh, former President Donald Trump spoke to the NRA and its members. Uh, and so I, we'll talk about that as well. I think we, we mentioned I was going to do that last week, and I did, in fact, do it. And it, members did, in fact, get that report first, uh, as I promised. And um, now we're going to yeah, talk about that as well. So we got a lot, a lot to cover here. Um, and I'll let you take it away. You're the, uh, you're the interviewer. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, so I guess we'll start with the, with the trial. Cause that's, uh, where you're most recently coming from. Uh, I guess first things first, where, where are we with this trial? You know, we've been doing some, some dispatches here and there about, you know, various people on the stand and what their witness testimony is. Where, where are we at currently with the trial? Yeah. So this was a six week trial, very long trial, right? Um, it's a civil trial for everybody to be fully understand that it's not a criminal trial. No, there's no risk of anyone going to jail here, although there are risks of significant fines being levied against current and former, 
the current and former leadership of the NRA. Although those fines would actually, uh, fine might not be the right word. It's sort of restitution. Uh, they'd actually have to pay back the NRA for the money that they diverted to towards themselves um, uh, for you know lavish personal expenses like private flights and and uh, luxury hotel stays and vacations and things of that stuff that I think we've been covering and people have heard a lot about you know Wayne Lapierre and uh, and, and how he used NRA money in this fashion. Um, so there, there's potential for very high um, restitution payments to be made, and then. Uh, in addition to Wayne LaPierre and NRA General Counsel John Frazier and former uh, Chief Financial Officer and Treasurer Woody Phillips as the three individual defendants in this case, the NRA itself as an entity is also a defendant, even though one of the potential outcomes is that the three individual defendants have to pay the NRA a bunch of money. Um, the NRA as an entity, as an organization, is also um, potentially going to see repercussions from this case, uh, which really will deal more with how the organization is structured and run and who is running it and what sorts of uh, uh, expenses they can uh, put on the books at the NRA. Uh, so that that's where the trial, uh, sort of the basic underpinnings of this trial, like the, the NRA is accused of not managing itself properly within the scope of the law in New York, where it's where it's chartered and has been since uh, just after the Civil War when it was founded. Um, and so because of that, the, there's three in, three individual defendants on the hook for potentially paying a bunch of money to the NRA, or really to NRA members is sort of how you might want to look at it. And then the NRA as an, as an institution Kind of more NRA leadership uh, is my how you want to look at that as a defense. Like people who run the NRA are like technically the NRA is on trial, but it's more the people who run the NRA that are on trial. If that if that makes sense. Um, so <laughs> uh, that's the the core of this. The, they're not you know, they're, they're accused of not running the organization properly or within the law, taking money. Um, that shouldn't have been spent on personal things, and and um, they may some of the defendants may have to pay that back. Now uh, we got to closing arguments this week. They happened on Thursday, so each side made its final push with the jury. Then there was um, uh, jury selection, which is kind of always a sad thing I think to watch because these people had to sit through six weeks of a trial. That's gets pretty in the weeds on, uh, you know, corporate governance. And, and then a bunch of them didn't actually make the jury itself. Right. They're, they're, <laughs> they were picked as alternate. They do like a, uh, like a bingo, uh, thing. And because it's kind of fascinating, kind of funny to watch is they put everyone's card, the number for the jurors in this, uh, bingo style, like little rolling machine. And they pick out numbers of, Oh, you're going to be an alternate. So sorry. <laughs> You spend all this stuff. Also, it's a civil trial, so there's only six jurors, uh, which is a bit different, obviously, from a criminal trial where you'd have 12. Um, but, yeah, they did that, and then the jury went back and deliberated. And right now, they haven't delivered a verdict, which I think nobody was really expecting them to on the first day. I mean, the, the jury instructions alone took about an hour and a half to read uh, on Friday. So that gives wow. you sort of an idea of how complex this case is um, 
because there's a lot of accusations against a bunch of different it's kind of like four trials in one because you know you have four defendants so they're all accused of different things but some of them are overlapping right like some of these expenses you could see wayne lapierre and woody phillips on the hook for um you know some of the like related party transactions or approvals things of that nature um and so it's it gets pretty complex and it's they also have to go through like every individual transaction that's accused of being um you know a, a violation of law and then determine how much money they should the defendants should have to pay back if it is a violation because the jury will recommend what they think each defendant should have to pay uh, i don't think john frazier is on the hook for any money uh that's mainly Wayne LaPierre and Woody Phillips, but they could be on the hook for tens of millions of dollars is what it sounded like. They didn't sum up all this in court. Like the AG in her closing arguments didn't give a specific final total number. She made allusion or she talked about specific things like Wayne LaPierre's jet travel, jet travel was value over this. And this is only for a couple of years, right? This case doesn't go all the way. You know, these allegations go back 30 years um, for how this stuff happened, but the case only focuses on, I think, 2017 through 2022, something something in that range. So it's pretty um, a tight window. And uh, but over that period, she accused him of um, over ten million dollars in private jet flights that the AG says were not appropriate. And so he could be on the hook for that. Um, you know, there's another, I think, three million or so maybe a little bit over 2 million there's somewhere between two and 3 million <laughs> yeah these things this is happening in court where you can't there's no recordings there's no transcripts available so you right. kind of have to sit there and watch and type you can you know type things out as they happen but um so forgive me if there's some slight variance in the numbers here but yeah the you know that was um somewhere in the two to three million dollar range for jet, jet travel that was for Wayne's relatives, mainly his niece and her husband, um, that he wasn't even on that the NRA paid for. Uh, so that's another couple million dollars. Then there was this TV show that the NRA had paid for that never got actually made or by the end of the contract wasn't actually being made. And I think that was somewhere around $13 million. Um, and that, that I believe could be split between LaPierre and Phillips. So, you know, there's the jury's going to have to go through all this stuff, determine who's responsible for these things. If they, if they agree with the AG that these were inappropriate, right? Because uh, obviously the defendants are saying these things weren't inappropriate. Well, I should clarify that. Not, for instance, LaPierre paid the NRA. They're either saying these things weren't inappropriate or they're defensible under the law or that they made restitution or that they enacted reforms to solve the issues that are at play in this case. That, that's sort of broadly what the defense has argued. And so uh, that, I was going to say that, that brings up a good point. Like, give, give us a general idea of, because you watch closing arguments, give us a general idea of what the defense team tried to leave the jury with before, obviously, the jury had to get in these complicated questions of the law and individual transactions. What was What was their general pitch to the jury of why either the NRA shouldn't be found liable or why these individual defendants shouldn't be found liable for this stuff. Uh, what was their, their closing argument? 
Yeah, well, that's it's, this is this case is, can be very hard to sum up, right? As you might notice from, right. from how I'm kind of uh, caveating everything and going uh, going to different spots here or there because you know you're trying to summarize a six week case and even closing arguments themselves that was eight hours yeah. of, of closing arguments and you had in the defense case like you're asking about here you got four different lawyers getting up to give four different defenses really uh there's themes uh they all claim that everybody was acting in good faith because that's key to the law like whether or not you you might make mistakes right uh but mistakes are expected to happen at some point right uh, especially in a large organization you're going to have somebody making mistakes and everyone makes mistakes they're human right so the law allows for this to some degree and one of the key things is whether or not you were acting in good faith. And so that's one major theme to the defense. Uh, all four defendants argued that they only ever acted in good faith. Um, obviously, the AG argued the opposite, that um, that either these defendants, the individual defendants, were knowingly doing um, this stuff like the private jet travel or especially the way Wayne would book that, which was through uh, a travel agent where he would often tell her not to include certain stops. If he went to pick up his, his niece, right. As part of the trip that would, he, the, she would be told not to include that in the billing or, you know, written out, um, you know, Woody Phillips had made arrangements. Although the, the, some of this doesn't make it into court is another hard thing too, because not everything that we know publicly was introduced in this case. For instance, Woody Phillips, there's an audio recording that came out during the trial that includes him speaking with Ackerman McQueen, the NRA's former top uh, contractor, who's a big player in this whole corruption scandal. Uh, he's talking to executives from that company about how they're going to have Ackerman issue a credit card to Tyler Schropp, who was the head of, uh, I believe, development at the NRA at the time, so that he could make purchases, uh, sort of potentially embarrassing purchases, things like private jet travel, luxury hotels, on the Ackerman card. And then Ackerman would bill that back to the NRA so that the NRA wouldn't have to necessarily disclose that they were making these purchases. It would just be bundled up into the bill that Ackerman was sending over, uh, which is how a lot of these sort of things happen that's what the, the suits people talk about the suits right that was that was how that was arranged ackerman paid for those suits in fact they never actually the nra never reimbursed them for that um although that was because when that happened the reimbursement payments didn't go through because that's when the split occurred they were doing this was the relationship they had for decades um this was how they arranged that tape is from um several decades ago of them arranging this this sort of graft operation but that didn't make it into court so woody phillips didn't have to answer for that stuff uh he you know so so a lot of his um he had to answer for a lot of other things that did make it into court like related party transactions um his post he got a big contract uh once he left the nra i think this is his the main part of uh, the claims of how he enriched himself from NRA was that he got this post-employment contract that was worth $30,000 a month plus $3,500 of um, 
for an office allowance where there were no terms for what he would actually have to do in return. Um, and I don't think there was any evidence presented that he did anything during the time that was in effect. Um, it was a consulting agreement. So the idea was that he was available to give his guidance to the, the next CFO that replaced him. But I don't think there was any evidence he ever did that. Now, on also that contract basically got canceled almost immediately. I think you know, he made like a couple hundred thousand dollars or maybe even less than that. I think he might've made a hundred thousand dollars off of that contract, but obviously that's an issue. It's a related party transaction. Um, and it's not clear that they were getting value for it, which is a big issue. So there's just so much to cover, <clears throat> but good faith was a huge theme. Um, you had Wayne LaPierre's lawyer focused primarily on the political aspect of this case. Um, so, you know, as we've talked about at length, I think on the, on the show and in our pieces, one of the big aspects of this case is that Letitia James, the attorney general, who's a Democrat, um, ran on investigating and um, going after the NRA. Uh, she called them a terrorist organization when she was running for AG. We talked about this last week with, with Professor Fishman and why this, uh, the NRA has presented this as a defense. They tried to use this to get the case thrown out, right? Her comments, um, and it didn't work, you know, that was rejected by the judge in the case and also on appeal. So, um, and, you know, the reason was that the idea that, uh, you know, her comments didn't have an effect on the, um, the nature of the charges in the case and that there basically there was uh, evidence underpinning the stuff that she was going after them for that wasn't connected to her political bias. But, but obviously, um, you know, that still sort of casts a lot of doubt on this prosecution or it casts it in a certain light, right. For a lot of people. Right. And so LaPierre's lawyer tried to focus on that in his defense uh, on this idea that Letitia James wanted to destroy the NRA. And so the way to do that was to destroy Wayne LaPierre. That was, uh, that's a direct line from his, his closing. And he tried to defend some of the more extravagant expenses that he made as being efforts to recruit high dollar donors uh, and celebrities to be the face of the NRA. Um, and so, you know, that, that was kind of Wayne's closing argument. You had um, Woody Phillips, who claimed his lawyer claimed that he never um, did anything to harm the NRA. Uh, another you know, common defense you saw among these, both the NRA and some of the individual individual defendants like Woody and, and LaPierre was that, you know, they obviously weren't destroying this organization. It wasn't a total scam op operation. The NRA grew tremendously during their tenure there. It became a lot more powerful. It, it gained a lot of members. It brought in a lot more money. So, you know, they whatever they were doing, you could question the management style or whether some of these expenses are worth uh, what they were getting in return. But you can't question that they were uh, successful in growing this organization and, right. and fulfilling its mission by advocating for uh, you know, gun rights uh, on those successfully. Two, on those two points, both both the growth that the NRA experienced during their tenure, and then the Lapierre 
point about the sort of the political valence of this. How, I'm curious, how did the AG's team handle that during their closing argument? Because, you know, as the professor pointed out last time in our podcast, the whole basis of this is supposed to be that the AG's office is bringing this on behalf of NRA members, right? It's supposed to be in their benefit. And as you said, there is this very clear, you know, even though that's not exactly at issue in this case, there's this very clear sort of political valence to this. I'm curious how the AG's office try to present their case when one, the NRA as a whole is a, is a party to this lawsuit. And at the same time, it's supposed to be for the benefit of NRA members. And she clearly has an ax to grind with the NRA, doesn't like what their political activities are. So how did they kind of wrap up their argument? Yeah, you know, on that last point, it's kind of funny because Wayne LaPierre's lawyer noted that you know, she's this case is supposed to be in the interest of NRA members, right? But she thinks the NRA is a terrorist organization. Right. So that doesn't make, you know, he's he's like, how does that make sense? Right. And but the AG used the exact same line in there, uh, the AG's lawyer. She wasn't Letitia James wasn't there, which is something that Wayne's lawyer pointed out that she never showed up to any of this, these trials, um, uh, sort of questioning the prior her priorities that she didn't maybe think this case was as important. Obviously she was doing the uh, case that we did get a verdict in um, this week uh, against Donald Trump, which maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the Trump speech, because they're sort of similarly situated uh, events where she got this huge judgment against Donald Trump. And it seems at least very possible that she may get a, a sizable judgment against Wayne LaPierre uh, and and Woody Phillips as well once this jury comes back. But um, yeah, she so but her lawyer, obviously, one of the assistant attorney generals was arguing this case, and she brought up the exact same line about how, you know, if this is a witch hunt, that the witch hunt accusation doesn't make sense because what they're doing is recovering money for the NRA. Um, so you kind of get both angles of that in the, the, in the closing arguments. On the one hand, you had Wayne using it, Wayne's lawyer using it as like a attack on the prosecution generally because, because, you know, she tried to shut down the organization, right? Which was, which the judge denied because that was her goal in, in the beginning was to dissolve the NRA. Um, which a lot of people had a lot of very valid concerns about, you know, shutting down a political opponent, uh, a government official doing that is is a very uh, serious and potentially scary, right, uh, uh, thing for someone for a government official to do. Like that's not how things operate in a free country outside of the most extreme circumstances, right? Um, which um, you know you could uh, it's. The NRA, I think the valid point is that they did carry out their mission to a large extent. The, you know, the question here is whether they could have done it uh, a better job of that uh, if they hadn't had people stealing from them, essentially, inside uh, a lot of money along the way. And so that was one of the AG's defenses as well, was this essentially that it doesn't really matter that they were successful overall. Um because they were basically stealing, you know, that she compared to, she used the metaphor of uh, someone being caught with their hand in the cookie jar. This was a metaphor that she used at the beginning of her, her closing arguments. And she said, you know, when someone's caught in, with their hand in the cookie jar, they're going to have all sorts of excuses. They're going to, they're going to deflect. They're going to blame other people. They're going to um, 
say, you know, uh, I didn't take that many cookies. Why does it matter? Um, you know, uh, they're going to make up all kinds of excuses and then they'll admit that they did wrong, but that it wasn't that big of a deal and that you shouldn't be paying attention anyway. They'll question your, you looking at them or looking into why they were taking the cookies. And so she kind of went through all essentially summing up most of what the defendants were saying uh, in, in sort of mocking it in her, uh, in her closing arguments, which came after the defendants. So she got to listen to all what they were saying. And then she basically was, was, uh, addressing this by comparing it to somebody who, who got their hand, uh, got caught with the crumbs on their face and their hand in the cookie jar. Um, that's how she described it. Uh, and she also addressed similarly the, one of the main, defenses that the NRA's lawyer got into was the idea that they have reformed, that they did have issues, um, that even, <clears throat> for instance, Wayne LaPierre was part of the problem, but that they had made a series of changes uh, uh, since these problems were brought to light. You know, they, they got rid of Ackerman McQueen, they sued Ackerman McQueen, now they lost that case, but uh, they had to pay Ackerman McQueen actually, but millions of dollars. Um, but, you know, the point was that they're trying that they made these reforms, they brought in a new CFO after Woody Phillips, who instituted a bunch of changes. Of course, they also uh, moved on from him after he raised concerns about uh, the bankruptcy filing that Wayne did of his own uh, authority without telling the CFO <laughs> beforehand, uh, who Craig Spray was the guy's name, and he got upset about that. And then shortly afterwards, Wayne said that they wanted to go in a different direction. Now they had a defense for this. They said he was, he had health concerns, which he did. Um, and that's why they wanted to go in a different direction. But the timing obviously of that was people can, we'll see what the jury draws from it. But yeah, I mean, uh, that was part of their big pitch was that yes, there were issues, but we fixed them. There is no need for further, intervention from the government. Um, you know, I think Wayne's lawyer compared this to self-defense, right? Like uh, government intrusion was sort of the theme of his, part of the theme of his defense. You know, the government's coming in and, and um, attacking this, this, this man, Wayne LaPierre and this organization that she doesn't like. Um, and, you know, he's just trying to defend uh, himself and the NRA and bankruptcy was part of that, that whole, uh, defense. And yeah, you can see, obviously a lot, a lot went on, right? <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, that, uh, I don't know. It, Just it, sort it's of a pretty, it's a pretty complicated uh, yeah. case and, and closing arguments. Well, I say, I think it's important context, right? Cause I think it's easy for an outside observer, maybe people that aren't following the, the nitty gritty too closely to this you'd be, oh, NRA bad, so this, or NRA good, so this. But this mm -hmm. actually deals with very arcane nonprofit law and corporate governance, and as you said, a multitude of defendants, individual allegations, yeah. and it's it's actually a very complex web. Um, sort of just to wrap up the, the trial aspect of this, um, 
give us an idea. You kind of alluded to it earlier, but an idea of when we might get a verdict in this case, and then sort of give us maybe your sense of, of having followed this trial very closely, just your overall sense of where the trial, you don't, I mean, you can, if you want to, but you don't necessarily have to uh, tell us what, you, how you think this is going to turn out, but just, just give us your overall sense ever after having now sat through the entire trial, um, just what, what this is going to look like at the end. Yeah, sure. I mean, one thing from being there on Friday when jury the jury began deliberations is that uh, it didn't seem to be going very well for them in terms of uh, making a lot of progress. I mean, first of all, this the sheet that they have to fill out is is bit, so they, it's uh, I don't know. I've been on a jury before, but it was a criminal jury in Virginia, so I don't uh, know how comparable it is to what they're going through. It's definitely different in some ways because. What the jury is tasked with doing in this case, you know, they're basically tasked with being the fact finders, right? They're going to decide whether or not the allegations against the NRA are true and the defendants, um, and they meet the burden of proof and, and all that stuff. And there's a lot of different charges they have to go through on that front. And then they're going to have, they're going to decide what the damages should be. And they're going to offer the judge what they think should be damages. And, and it can, you know, there's some, some of those sums I was talking about earlier, the, you know, tens of millions of dollars. Not only can they award those as repayments, but they can also award like a, um, you know, punitive sort of damage. It's not, I don't think it's called punitive, but basically they can award double that too, which, you know, I don't think Wayne LaPierre or Woody Phillips is worth anywhere near the kind of money that they could be on the hook for in this case, from my understanding of watching the proceedings. Uh, I'm sure Wayne has, you know, some, he's not poor. Uh, you know, he made 2 million a year for quite a while at the NRA. So I'm sure he has some money, uh, but I don't think he has tens of millions of dollars to pay back to the NRA. If, if it comes to that, um, he's already made a million dollar payment as part of the idea that he's sort of done restitution, um, which was also like, you know, part of, part of the NRA defense. So, and I'll get into that in a second, but uh, yeah, one of the things that makes me think they're going to take a while is they, it's just so much to go through and they have to fill out the sheet. That's like several pages long of, you know, uh, did this person do this? And if so, how much do you think they need to pay back? Um, if anything, so they could also say zero in theory, but um the other issue was when they started making, when they went back to deliberate and they started making requests, well, their first request was that they wanted all of the evidence in the case, which is like thousands of exhibits. <laughs> so um, they didn't get that in necessarily because the judge, I think they, they wanted them to like kind of narrow down exactly what they wanted. Right. I mean, obviously, you know, you're on the jury, you, you want as much information as you can get uh, understandable, but, I think the judge wanted them to kind of like, you know, figure out exactly what kind of things you want to be sent in. And so they hadn't even gotten to that point where they sent back more specific requests by the end of Friday. So that's an indication that they're not moving very quickly necessarily. Uh, they, there was also apparently a, a jury, one of the jurors sort of expressed only I think about two hours into deliberations that they weren't moving very quickly and that they were kind of going around in circles um, on some point. Uh, and uh, 
you know, so that's not necessarily a great sign that they're going to be done quickly. Um, and then at the end, they there was a third one that they requested, which had to do with this complexly worded exception to related party transactions. So that a lot of this deals, a lot of this case, especially the NRA side of it, and Woody Phillips and LaPierre deals with related party transactions. So we, people have probably heard a lot about, um, you know, the board members getting paid a bunch of money th over the years by the NRA. And um, <clears throat> yeah, the, so there, you can do related party transactions. Um, in fact, you know, this has been an issue. This is sort of a common thing that happens at nonprofits, especially smaller ones, where that can get them in trouble where they're like using uh, companies or owned by people who are working with the group or on its board or, or whatever. Um, and, you know, you have to go through a specific process. This is something that if people remember the Second Amendment Foundation, there were allegations about this. We had we did a whole interview with Alan Gottlieb on these questions and went through them in that case. But the NRA's case, there's a lot more of them and there's a lot more people. And <clears throat> one of the things that can excuse a related party transaction apparently is this concept that basically if they're getting, now this is gonna be paraphrased and this is, this is the thing, like there's a very technical definition of this exception that that jury was given and they asked for a layman's term version of this. And so the judge tried to talk to the uh, AG and the defendants to come up with a more layman version of it. Uh, and actually, I think he, what he really wanted to do was get, just tell them that it doesn't apply because the tr it's, it seems that in my view of it, at least, and this seemed to be the judge's view that the, the this exception has to do with like, if you're getting a benefit as an insider, as a related party, you know, whether you work for the NRA or you're on the board or, or you're related to somebody who is, um, that you get a benefit from the NRA or whatever group that is just part of being like an NRA member and that it's part of the, the NRA fulfilling its mission. The judge compared this to like getting the magazines that the NRA sends out to members, right? Like you, you couldn't go after a board member because they get the American rifleman because that's just a general benefit of anyone who is part of the NRA. It's not some special thing for that, uh, board member or that related party or what if that makes any sense it's you can kind of get the idea of how complex some of these questions are and some of the issues of law but yeah they debated about this for like so long he didn't the judge didn't think that anyone tried to use this as a defense in the in the case against any of these related party transactions because i mean that's not really what anyone is accused of uh right they're accused of things like Susan LaPierre getting $10,000 in hair and makeup tre treatments for an event that she did. Like, that's obviously not something that is generally available to NRA members or some class of NRA members. You don't get hair and makeup treatment when you go to an NRA event, at least not in my experience. Um, <laughs> and that was kind of his point. Like, there may be other, there's other exceptions. There's not, that's not the only exception. There's like a de minimis, if it's not a big deal, like it's not a lot of, the benefit's not very big, or if, Basically, it's um, beneficial to the NRA and it's in line with market rates for that service. That's usually how these things are justified. 
um, you know, usually people will say, well, this, yes, this is a related part transaction, but it's okay because we looked around at determined that this was either a better deal than what we could get on the open market or a comparable deal. And that's how the most related party transactions are justified. Um, so, uh, which is also one of the, those are kind of the main defenses in these allegations of related party transactions that the, the defendants have made. But uh, so anyway, <laughs> they spent like an hour and a half going back and forth with what to tell the jury and just kind of gave up um, until next week. So the jury will come back on Tuesday cause Monday's a holiday. And, um, I just think that those indicators with the complexity of the case and the indicators of where the jury is at right now give, makes you think they're probably going to take a while, maybe, maybe not till late next week. Yeah. Um, and it's an abbreviated week too. So, um, but yeah, I mean, as far as, where do I think things are going to come out? Well, one thing I would say is when I was listening to the, well, I, you know, maybe, I think I see setting the groundwork here. One thing you could probably guess at is how the defendants felt about this case to begin with, right? Because you don't need to be a legal expert to notice what they did, which is they tried to avoid it at all costs. They tried, they filed bankruptcy. It's a huge step to take, probably damaged their, their reputation among donors. Cause I mean, if you go bankrupt, everybody thinks you're not, uh, why would they give you money? <laughs> you know what I mean? And they have lost a lot of money, whether it's, it's probably some combination of the allegations and the bankruptcy and everything else going on. Um, but I'm sure the bankruptcy didn't help them on that front. And uh, so the, that gives you an idea of how concerned they were about this trial in this case and what it was going to lead to, right? They, they, to me, that says a lot about how they think this is going to come out before any of this trial happened, right? Uh, now, obviously, the bankruptcy failed. It didn't work. They're, they had to do this trial anyway. Um, and so I think you could take a lot from that without even having to be an expert in New York nonprofit law. Now, right. obviously last week, the expert that we had, he didn't think they were going to win either. But um, I would also say when, when the jury instructions were actually read, you know, one of there's sort of two big things that I've talked about in members pieces on this case that, that are going to be, you know, potentially hard for a jury to decide. Like a lot of what's going to come down is, was this just bad management? Like it would just because you wouldn't have spent money on trying to court celebrities to your cause. Like maybe you don't think it's worth it to get Dean Kane, like to spend a big amount of NRA money to get Dean Kane to come on board or to have Montel Williams make a PSA for you or something along those. These are some of the things that Wayne brought up as successful uses of these kind of lavish events or the yacht trips or stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, but that's different from saying these are unlawful expenses. Uh, and, and so that's, that's one thing that the jury's going to have to decide. And the other thing is like, the, there was a lot of, um, the NRA made a, a lot of hay about whistleblowers and who is a real whistleblower and who's not. Um, and whether, what, constitutes a whistleblower and what constitutes retaliation against a whistleblower. Uh, 
And so I, I thought that both of those points would maybe be a little bit more technical when the jury instructions were read, like the the law would be a little bit more specific and complex on those questions. But honestly, they were pretty, it was pretty straightforward stuff. Like, um, uh, or, you know, the, and there's also the question of like personal benefit, whether you'd have to, like some of these things, it's easier to say, well, Wayne benefited personally from these expenses when he's flying private or going to the luxury hotels or whatever. Um, and Woody too, with his post-employment agreement, but, um, John Frazier, who's the, the general counsel, he didn't, there were no accusations like that against him. Um, instead his stuff was more about signing, you know, attesting to things that turned out not to be true in, in legal documents. Um, and, and so a lot of the defense on that is going to come down to, it doesn't, but that was one of the points in instruction. It doesn't matter if you didn't personally benefit from some, some aspect of this, if your job was to oversee it and you didn't do that, uh, if you should have known, for instance, he signed off on 990s that said that they had, uh, properly disclosed their related party transactions when in fact they hadn't done that. Um, you know, it's just signing off on that. Now, maybe his argument is he didn't necessarily know that he, you know, people didn't tell him the right information, but the standard is not whether he intentionally lied on the form. It's whether he should have known. And so that'll be a, a, a lower bar to clear, I think, um, than if they had to prove that he did know and lied. Um, that would be a different standard because I don't think they had any evidence to that effect. Their argument was more just that he should have known. They basically just didn't do his job properly. Um, but, you know, then you get to the related party stuff or the, sorry, the whistleblower stuff. And I thought it was going to be more complex. And they were going to talk about what constitutes a whistleblower, what you would have to specifically do, that there's some process you have to go through. Um, and then there would be very specific instructions on what retaliation is that like it has to be a very specific thing but the jury instructions at least made it all sound pretty generic like you just have to be somebody who was an employee or a director at the group and raised a concern um which you know a lot of people did uh and, you know we've interviewed some of them phil phil journey and uh, rocky marshall who were witnesses in this case uh, and then retaliation can just be intimidation or harassment or any other form of retaliation. And, um, yeah, I mean, they were, they were removed from their committee assignments explicitly, you know, seems pretty explicitly because they raised these objections. They weren't renominated to be on the board again, uh, by the nominating committee for, it seems like the same reasons. So yeah, the, uh, my feeling was that the jury instructions, came out uh, worse for the, the defendants than I thought they were going to be. Um, and so, I don't know. I think it'll be hard to imagine an outcome where the NRA gets, where none of these are, where the jury says none of these are, are accurate. There may, there may be some sort of mix because there's so many things. Um, but I would expect largely that the NRA is going to um, get the brunt, the NRA and the individual defendants, LaPierre and especially LaPierre, honestly, um, will get the brunt of this ruling. We'll go against them. Yeah. But no, that's good. We'll that's see. Good information. Yeah, it's good information. And obviously we'll be staying on top of that when the verdict eventually does come down, which it sounds like it could be several days just based on your description of the jury. Um, I think it will be. 
but we've got we also have Joseph uh, uh, Bruker up there. In, he'll be in court um, next week as well. So we'll we'll have information as soon as it comes out. And uh, yeah, so make sure you're checking in to the reload if you because I, I you know honestly I think this case is hugely important. It hasn't gotten a lot of coverage. Um, you know the Trump stuff has overshadowed a lot for understandable reasons, right? He was just ordered to pay $350 million uh, over, you know, fraud charges of inflating his, his, uh, the value of his properties and stuff in various different ways. Um, so I understand to some degree why those things overtake or the, the whole Fannie Williams thing in Georgia right. being, becoming a spectacle. Um, but the NRA stuff like that's one is super similar to what's going on with Trump. Um, and two, I think it's going to have a major impact on the election, uh, the NRA's ability to compete in the election, and then their long-term viability as well. Like whether they could ever come back from this, I think, is a huge question, even if, you know, regardless of how this comes out. Because at this point, like they're, they've lost so many members, as we, we reported. Nobody really knows how many they have at this point, but you've got board members saying, under 3 million, which would be a shocking number. Like that would be an right. incredible acceleration of, of uh, member loss. If that's the case, you had another board member say 3.8 million, which also would still be down significantly from when we reported that they lost a million. That would be another about half million uh, members lost. Um, so either way, the, it's not looking good. You know, the NRA won't say, they won't give their own estimate, but the ones that are coming out of insiders of people currently on the board um aren't pretty i say that right. much and um yeah I, how do you win them back i think that's that's another huge question like this case could help with that you know if you wipe out the board like right now the nra is still run by basically the same people that wayne wayne's longtime allies run the nra charles cotton who is the president that they changed the bylaws to keep president he was in court for a lot of this stuff, um, cited positively by the individual defendants and the NRA a number of times. Um, you know, Andrew Olanundam is the executive vice president now. He was a very close uh, confidant for Wayne for decades, uh, came from Ackerman McQueen originally, was spokesperson. They did a whole maneuvering uh, internal maneuverings to get him from spokesperson to EVP that are, I think raised a lot of uh, red flags for, you know, critics of the organization, at least, or, you know, internal critics like, uh, like journey and, and uh, Marshall and people of that, you know, in that group. So, you know, I, that's where it stands now. I don't think you're going to expect a big change of course with how, <clears throat> the NRA operates if this leadership remains. So if the NRA wins this this case, I think you expect them to maintain the same course they've been on the last five years, which has not been uh, particularly uh, successful. One uh, maybe maybe winning the case will change their fortunes in people's minds and donors' minds and former members' minds. Maybe, maybe that could happen. So the other thing that could happen is they lose this case and then potentially you get current leadership wiped out and new everything at the NRA, new right. bylaws, new structure for the board, new people running the place. I, 
you know, this is one of the things that makes it hard to cover that at this, like their normal political stories, because everything could change uh, within right. the next month. And same thing for Trump, right? Which I guess might lead us well into the next story. Here. I was gonna say the open questions about their ability to be, you know, still as powerful politically, uh, at least in the longer term, is an open question, but at least in the shorter term, they're doing a lot of the same things they've been doing, uh, remaining very close to former President Trump. Um, they just had him speak at the NRA Outdoor Show. And once again, you were on the ground for that event and you you witnessed Trump speaking to NRA members. Uh, just give us a sense of of how he was received, what he, what topics he covered, how he tried to position himself as a, a gun rights champion, because um, these are all things we've covered for, for a while now, especially during Trump's tenure and his candidacy now. Um, so give us your sense of, of how that went. Yeah, and I think I could keep this one a little bit shorter because I think this event ended up being a little bit of a letdown in terms of news value, interestingly, because, you know, they, this is the first time they've had a political speech at the Great American Outdoor Show, uh, which is more akin to a regular gun show. Uh, not, I mean, not quite, but because you don't actually sell guns, they sell, but they do sell basically everything else, ammo and knives and whatever else you might find at a gun. They even have the, the big long pieces of licorice, which is a thing like <laughs> at gun shows. For, I don't know why that's part yeah. of eventual culture. Licorice and jerky are jerky, always, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, barbecue sauce made yeah. by some, you know, somebody just random dudes, barbecue sauce, uh, super common things. It has all that stuff. Uh, right. Um, now it has a lot of thing hunting related stuff too, and out stuff beyond pure gun stuff because uh, it's an outdoor show, so it's a little bit more diverse. But you know, it has cars and side by sides, and there's a Ford Bronco there, and like Ram trucks and things like that. But yeah, um, so it's it's a lot more, it's a lot closer to what your average gun show would be like than like the NRI annual meeting or Shot Show, which these those things are kind of closer to trade shows. Um, you can't really buy it unless you're a dealer. You can't buy anything at them. Um, in fact, you can't even get into SHOT Show if you're not in the industry, right? So this is so the Great American Outdoor Show is is much closer to just a uh, a gun show. And so they've done, they haven't done political events at that before. Uh, you know, they swooped it. This was a Great American Outdoor Show was a was is a long running thing in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And there was a controversy years, I think it was after Sandy Hook, where the, uh, the operator who had done it for a long time didn't want to uh, have the AR-15s on display after Sandy Hook. And so obviously that created a lot of backlash and forced them to sell the show to the NRA. And the NRA came in and bought it up and they've been operating it ever since. But they basically just kept it pretty much the same as it was, except until this year, where now they've added this presidential forum to the event, which seemed like, uh, I think we talked about this last week, like a pretty obvious clue that they were going to endorse Donald Trump because he was the only candidate invited to this presidential forum, even though Nikki Haley is still running against him in the primary. So it's, you know, it's sort of an obvious, like they picked Donald Trump, which is not surprising anyone, I don't think, because uh, they've been extremely close to him since 2015 right um and that but they didn't they didn't endorse him that was the weird part like they did everything as though they were already supporting him officially like their whole pre-amble like the speeches leading up to trump were all about how he was the best president and they needed to get him back to being president um and so it was 
a, it was a Trump rally is what it was, you know, at its core, but one paid for by the NRA basically. And, uh, it was a bit odd that they didn't actually endorse him. So it just ended up being a, a Trump rally at an NRA event. Um, and so it went along like a lot of other Trump rallies do. Um, <laughs> and it was, he mentioned that they weren't endorsing him. Um, and he didn't seem that bothered by it. Uh, he, he, he made this like comment about how they better endorse him once he speaks at the annual meeting in May. Um, but that was it. Like he wasn't, he didn't rail against them for not endorsing him yet. Um, but it was, it was very odd in that sense. Like why, why did they do this event? <laughs> you know, like it wasn't, if you're not going to announce that you're endorsing him, but you're going to have like just a tr generic Trump rally anyway at your gun show. I don't know. It's just a strange, like it was hard to pull what the point of it was. And, and it was really just very similar to a lot of the other speeches he's done um, with the NRA. And now I will say when he speaks to the NRA, I feel like he gets, he stays a little, it's hard to describe this, right? I know people have been to Trump rallies or watched him, watched an entire Trump speech at one of these things might have a better understanding of what I'm trying to relay here. Trump speaks in a very um, just a flow of consciousness style, right? Yeah. I mean, everybody knows that. But so his rallies can be very rambling. Um, he'll just go from one topic to the next and make a lot of asides into whatever he wants to say, uh, whatever comes into his head. Uh, and sometimes he'll repeat himself on different things and he might even contradict himself at points or, or whatever. Um, but like I've always gotten the impression that when he speaks at NRA events, he does seem to value the idea of actually trying to make gun related promises. Um, so he clearly had a prepared remarks that I think focused primarily on gun issues. Um, and so you got periods where he was actually reading from those remarks that were very specific to what he was promising, which is mostly uh, really nothing new, I wouldn't say. Like it's he's going to roll back what Biden has done. Um, a lot of a lot of platitudes about being the best on guns ever, and and nobody touched your Second Amendment when I was president, and I'm not going to do anything to the Second Amendment when I'm to your guns when I you know when I become president again. And Biden is the worst, you know, president on guns and that kind of stuff. There's a lot of that, as you might expect. Um, and he promised like national reciprocity uh, was a specific legislative promise he made, which is something, again, he's he's already said in the past. I think he said that when he was at the end of his presidency. It right. never happened, of course, but um, that's one of the things that he that's a sort of concrete promise he made. Um, but yeah, then you would get between those sections of the speech, you'd get just stream of consciousness stuff about all kinds of things. Um, and, you know, uh, one of the, th it's, uh, uh, geez, I don't know. I will say that as somebody who was there covering it as media, um, they still do, and the NRA did this too. Billy McLaughlin, who is the digital director, um, and Trump both had moments where they pointed at the media in the pen. Uh, it wasn't in the pen, but and I don't think people realized that was media for the most part. 
Um, but you know, they, they did the thing where there's sort of a two minutes of hate thing, right? Like those, the media people, they're awful. Everyone turn around and boo them and yell and curse at them, which is not a new thing, right? He's been doing right. that since 2016. So it's, a, it's, but it, uh, it does, I just be honest, it, it has a different feel now after January 6th, it just does. Right. I mean, it's a very intense experience if you've been there um, in person. Like that is one of the most animated points that the crowd gets is uh, just expressing how much they disdain the media, which, uh, you know, it's and I think it's a very bad contrast to um, what was a pretty good, like valid critique of media coverage that the NRA had that Billy had had in his presentation about uh, they showed a video of uh, somebody who defended themselves uh, from an attacker by shooting them. Um, and he described that, you know, they had, NRA had done an analysis of the top 10 newspapers and found that like they covered defensive gun uses very, very, very rarely. And uh, especially in contrast to how often they cover criminal uh, gun use. And so this is like a very valid and researched point uh and then you turn around and, and it was just like everybody turn around and yell at the media people and when i was walking out you know there was there were some guys ironically from the local fox station who were carrying their camera equipment out and um this guy behind us was like really menacingly um like um uh, like mocking them in a very menacing way like uh, it just makes me very uncomfortable. I mean, just to be completely honest with you, I, this is sort of an aside um, to what was going on, but I, I know it's hard not to to mention this stuff because it just feels different now. I, I've seen it before plenty of times and nobody got, look, no one did anything. I'm not suggesting that. Um, but, and then there were other women, when I was walking out, there were women talking about how the local Fox guys should be charged with treason, which if you don't know, carries the death penalty. Right. So, you know, the, the, these events, they they oscillate pretty wildly from like excited cheering because people want to see Donald Trump and they love they really love Donald Trump, uh, which is, you know, fair enough. And they cheer at some of the stuff he says and they like policies or whatever. And they laugh at his jokes and it's a jovial good time. And then there's these very intense um, moments of shared like disdain for a group of people who was in the building with them um and look that's what you got to be able to put up with that as media i i just trying to describe the feeling of it and then like the way it goes back and forth and then there's long stretches to be honest with you of where the crowd gets bored because you know this is the other big takeaway that i have from it um i don't know that there's again Maybe I'm talking too much about it because I don't know there was a ton of news value out of this because they didn't endorse him. It was just a normal, regular Trump speech. He mainly just made the same promises he's made before and said a lot of uh, stuff about how he's uh, the best president on guns. He obviously didn't bring up the bump stock ban or anything like that. He didn't try to defend that or, or mention it at all. Um, but yeah, uh, the other takeaway I had was that at these I think Trump speeches are sort of this novel, fascinating thing, very energetic thing, especially if you, you like him, right, when you first go. But I kind of wonder how much of that novelty still exists for some of these the attendees, because 
there were long stretches where he would go off on the sides and it would be quiet and people would sit back down and they just sit and wait until the next like cheering moment. And there would be long stretches between those and, or the next like punchline that you know, Trump, Trump is pretty good at the entertainment side of this, this whole experience with, with being a politician much better than a lot of other ones, obviously. And, and so he's still able to generate enthusiasm and uh, make the crowd laugh, but there, there would be long periods where um, it was just quiet and people were watching. And, and honestly, by the end, he went on for about an hour and 15 minutes. And by the end, this started with the stadium. This is in a little, like a mid-sized stadium. I don't know what, maybe a college, mid-sized college stadium is might, might compare it to a couple, couple thousand people. Uh, I don't know what the official statistics are. Uh, I, I will say that attendance at the, the show overall, which is a week long show, the NRA said was a all time high. So, um, you know, and they did fill up this venue almost completely full. There wasn't an overflow crowd as Trump claimed there was, but, uh, but it was a full venue. It wasn't something where you could say, Oh, there's no enthusiasm for this or people didn't show up. Uh, but by the end of the hour and 15 minutes, half of those people had left before he finished. People yeah. walked out. And these are these are very strong Trump supporters from the impression that I got watching. I was going to say that a lot of cheering. I was most struck by that, I think, in your reporting on this event, because you said a lot of it was standard boilerplate Trump promises to gun owners. Yeah. Right. But that was a like you said, aside from an actual Trump rally, it's about as close to his base as you're going to get. And the fact that he still by the end of a rally walked half the crowd, it says maybe maybe says something about that. Like you said, the novelty maybe. coming off. The I'm sure all those people are going to vote for him. I wouldn't right. I'd be very surprised if they didn't. I mean, they sh they showed up, they cheered. It was very when the crowd was enthused, uh, it was very enthusiastic. And so I don't think there were a lot of like people on the fence about who they're going to support in the election by right. any means. Um, but it did get, I just got the feeling that maybe these people have seen Trump speak before. This has been eight, you know, eight years now. And the kind of person who's going to a Trump rally in 2024 is probably the kind of person who's been to a Trump rally before. And so, you know, they might not, they might want to go and see him and cheer. And then, you know, when, when they're done with doing that, they might want to get a head start on getting out ahead of the traffic i don't that's my best explanation for it and I, it does feel like maybe trump loses the crowd a little like he's lost the touch a little bit for for these crowds um because this is not the first time i've heard of people walking out before it's over um, and these are not like not because they're offended by anything he did or that certainly wasn't the impression that i got from it because it was a slow trickle out it wasn't like trump said something and then they got upset about it and left that that definitely wasn't the feel of it. It was just, he went on for long periods where people were not cheering or clapping or laughing. You're just kind of sitting there and listening to him. And, you know, uh, I guess people got their fill of what they were looking for. And by the end, it was about half, about half the stadium had left already. Sure. Uh, but anyways, thank you for the the reporting on your, like you said, shoe leather. You've been all over the, <laughs> all over the country the last couple of weeks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> reporting. You've on these done some events. great reporting though. We should, have, I've done a lot of talking. Let's let you, uh, round up what's going on with, um, with some of the stories that, that you've covered, uh, over those last weeks. Specifically, let's start with the new 
uh, Mexico situation, they they tried to pass this uh, sort of we've described it as a rebrand of the Solvens ban. Can you talk a little bit about what the bill actually is and does and what happened with it? Right. Uh, yeah. So this was uh, New Mexico's legislative session just ended uh, this past Thursday. Uh, it was a 30 day session. I guess it's they, they alternate between odd and even number of years. Sometimes it's 60 days, sometimes it's 30. So it was an abbreviated session. But one of the main agenda items was uh, what has been called the GoSafe Act, the Gas Operated Semi-Automatic Firearm Exclusion Act. So kind of a, a cheeky name there. Um, and longtime listeners and, and readers might recall that this is actually a federal propo- proposal uh, by a New Mexico Senator, Martin Heinrich, along with Angus King of Maine and uh, some co-sponsors, Mark Kelly from Arizona and Michael Bennett from Colorado. Uh, and in their telling, it is a, essentially a rebrand of an assault weapon ban because, uh, quote unquote, they want to regulate how firearms function and what makes them deadly rather than cosmetic features. So it's kind of a nod to some of the maybe common critiques you might hear from gun rights folks about assault weapon bans. And what it does essentially is say that, you know, what we're banning are, as the name suggests, uh, gas operated firearms. And they go into this sort of, they try to get into the wonky detail about, you know, blowback systems and direct impingement systems and all these different common operating systems. And what they end up describing just turns out to be all semi-automatic firearms are essentially right, covered. It's not actually gas operated. Like right. they don't, they say it's gas operated guns, but if you read the text, that's not actually what they define. The, the way they define gas operated means recoil operated or blowback, yeah. blowback operated is included in there. Right. So and essentially it, just yeah. encompasses all semi-autos and then to right. get around how extreme that would be, obviously they just mm-hmm. carve out, gas operated guns that they think are okay. So for example, most recoil operated handguns get carved right. out. Any right. shotgun of any kind, at least in the federal proposal was carved out, mm-hmm. whether or not it had any of these banned gas systems and was semi-auto. So yeah, that's essentially, it's it's not a very precise, it, it's it's a clever way to try to obviously rebrand an assault weapon ban, but it, it's not very precise in terms of its definitions and its technical and effect, aspects. I think the effect is very similar to similar and perhaps even solvents. perhaps even a, more. Yeah, yeah, probably a little bit broader. Um, yeah, but very similar otherwise. Um, but the news hook of this was, that, you know, this federal ban got introduced and it didn't go anywhere. It's still sitting in the Senate and hasn't even been taken up for any kind of vote. Yeah, but they voted you, on the regular assault weapons ban right, right, right shortly after, after this the, got introduced. Yeah, that's right. Which also so, didn't go anywhere. <laughs> so that kind of tells you federally, at least, where this that's headed. But New Mexico's governor, who has been pushing for an assault weapon ban and failed last session in 2023, said, I'm going to try this Go Safe Act this time around, basically trying to take the purported strategy of the federal folks saying that this will help us. You know, we're not going after those cosmetic features. We're doing technical stuff. And she pitched that to her legislature to, to try to get that across the line. And so we were obviously following this because this would be an interesting test case of does it actually make a difference how you brand an assault and ban? And maybe can you get, you know, get some traction with a new strategy? And, you know, as the results at least demonstrated this time around, it doesn't seem like it helped all that much. Uh, there, the New Mexico Go Safe Act was, it was voted out of committee. Um, so it actually made it on a party line vote out of committee, but it was never brought up for a floor vote in either chamber. And that's despite, you know, gun bills were a, a very prominent feature of this session in New Mexico. They passed a seven-day waiting period for gun sales, and they passed a ban on carry at polling places. These were two priorities of their governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham. But 
this GoSafe Act didn't go anywhere. So I, I kind of did a breakdown of the sort of the political side of this. And it just at least early indications suggest that a rebranding effort doesn't really get you much. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting. Obviously, you had some caveats in there about there might be a special session the governor calls or she keeps. Yeah, she's teasing a se special session. She hasn't committed yet. Uh, she did this last year as well, and they never ended up calling a special session. So we don't know mm. how credible this. Although this I don't know is. why things would have changed. Right. Why would they change between regular session and special session? On this? Right. Uh, maybe they would. But um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty interesting because New Mexico is trifecta Democrat, right? That's right. So, That's right. And then, and obviously Grisham has sort of made her mark in gun politics lately by oh, making yeah. it one of her chief issues. She, she most famously did the flat out ban on carry in Albuquerque mm -hmm. and which was struck down in court and had to be kind yeah. of reined in a little bit. Um, yeah, it didn't work so out she well obviously, politically. Right. Yeah. She even, yeah, was rebuked by folks on her side of the aisle and, and allies. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting to see someone that outspoken on the issue of guns just not be able to get anywhere on the, at least on this particular policy. Like, as I mentioned before, other gun control policies have passed and are still passing, but it doesn't look like this gun ban is going to go anywhere. And I think it's telling yeah. that other States this year that are also pursuing assault weapon bans are going back to the features based Colorado yeah, is doing it. Uh, uh, Virginia passed a features based ban, uh, mm -hmm. Rhode Island and Minnesota have introduced features based bans. So it just doesn't passed, seem like the go not, safe act. Not signed. None of these have actually made it. Right. Right. Yeah. None of this is law. Um, but, but, at least that's, you know, th these folks are working with obviously the gun control groups and it doesn't seem like there's a ton of energy other than New Mexico and then these small handful of senators for this GoSafe Act proposal as of yet. Yeah. And I think we talked about this at the time when they introduced this this proposal in, in the, the Senate, in the U.S. Senate, because like one of the problems with this thing is that it's so much more, it's, it'd be, it's much more difficult to message uh, because it's a right, lot more right. complex. It also is like, it's poorly written because it doesn't actually do what it says it does uh, because the authors clearly don't understand what gas operated is, or, you know, it, they made a total jumble of the actual text, of the legislation, and it's much harder to message on like gas operated semi-automatic is not as easy to sell. I think as a scary thing as assault weapon, right? That the whole point of, assault weapon is that it's like a good brand for the gun control people because it sounds threatening. It's just, um, it gets to a point that we've made before with like the Biden ATF regulations, right? It's yeah. it, you, you announce something like this and gun owners know what you're talking about and it riles right. them up. But the right. common public is like, what the hell's a pistol brace or what the hell's a gas operated right. gun? So we're not going to even fight for this because we don't even know what it means. Yeah. It mo mobilizes opposition because obviously gun owners know what a gas operated gun is and they know what you're yeah. getting at. So And they understand the implications of what would actually happen if this right. was passed. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, like, it's also funny because, yeah, it was sold as like a this way to address the shortcomings of your traditional assault weapons bans, which really focus on cosmetic or ergonomic features like pistol grips and adjustable stocks and flash suppressors, things like that, uh, which people also don't. If you if you did the flash suppressor ban bill, nobody is going to understand what that is in the general public. But if you right. call it an assault weapons ban, well, people can uh, understand that assaulting is bad uh, generally. And so, uh, you know, it, it's it's bad branding i think is the point i'm getting at you know whatever right I'm just not to the 
this is a different critique than talking about the what it actually does and whether that's good or bad. But the, the very clearly the branding effort here doesn't make sense. And especially because if your argument is that you're fixing these shortfalls because assault weapons bans have traditionally been poorly written and full of, you know, ways to get around them because they're not based on how the gun actually works or the ammunition it uses or whatever, these common critiques of, of these sorts of laws you would think that you would produce something that was technically sound when, and instead they call it they call it a gas operated semi-automatic ban and then they just define gas operated as things that are gas operated and then things that aren't gas operated. so <laughs> right. uh, and then you make weird carve outs like the shotgun one you can have a gas operated semi-automatic shotgun under the gas operated semi-automatic uh gun ban for some reason Right. Uh, you can have a gas-operated semi-automatic handgun under the gas-operated semi-automatic gun ban for some reason. Uh, I mean, the reason is, like, they don't... It's basically just goes back to the same reasoning that the assault weapons ban has different uh, things that are accepted from it. They just... Because they, they're trying to get at a certain kind of gun, the, the AR-15 primarily. Right. And without banning things that they don't think are as scary, even if they're very similar in nature, like... Um, you know, the, the mini 14, um, or a semi-automatic shotgun, you know, these things are pump action shotguns, which were considered to be uh, a war crime by the Germans in world war one, uh, the pump action shotgun that all Democrats, including the president think are perfectly reasonable, uh, what, you know, weapons for everybody to, to own were actually the Germans in world war one thought that those were war crimes to use um, in the trenches so just sort of a irony of history i guess and how right some of these things come out but but it's, yeah it's, I mean, it's just it clearly hasn't worked though like to your point like right, it's just right. didn't, it didn't work it didn't garner any more support than your your traditional solvent ban right and and i think we identified early on why it wouldn't it's worth noting, though, that it doesn't, at least as of now, look like it's going to go away. Uh, every town uh, put out a press release, you know, sort of celebrating the bills that did pass and celebrating the end of the session. But they mentioned the Go Safe Act specifically in that press release and said that they were going to continue to work with the governor to uh, push for this. And there's no indication that the governor has given up on the Go Safe Act strategy either. And she's clearly she's put out several press releases since the end of the session talking about how there's more work to be done on public safety and gun legislation. So. We may see, uh, you know, more test cases to see if this will work. But uh, as you pointed out, the shortcomings will still be there, I think, even if it does come back. Yep. Well, we'll be following it. And I think you in particular will we'll be following how this all plays out in the end. If maybe it picks up steam again at some point down the road. I mean, the biggest thing it has going for it is who was who were the people that brought it up for consideration in the Senate? Because they were they were guys who have supported assault weapons bans in the past but hadn't co-sponsored them or not, several of them had not co-sponsored uh, those types of bills in the past. And so this was the idea was like maybe with these couple of more moderate Democrats, I don't know how you'd want to describe them. Um, you know, maybe they'd have some more momentum, but that didn't pan out in the Senate and it doesn't seem to have panned out in New Mexico either. And as you noted, it doesn't look like this is going to be the next thing. But it could be. You never know. I mean, we, you never know. I wrote a piece that said Sullivan's bands were dead uh, like two years ago, um, right before they there was a bit of a resurgence that we've seen. Um, 
So it's, it's an interesting, you never know for sure uh, what's going to happen right. with these things. Um, I would still, and of course we don't, I don't even have time to get into more of this, but there are a bunch of assault weapons ban cases now pending at the Supreme court. Um, so this stuff might be moot in a, in a, in a year or two, depending on what the court does with these kind of bans anyway. I don't, Although if the court strikes down Sullivan's bans, you might see something like this uh, take off because it's technically slightly different in how it works. um, Sort Sort of of. like Bruin response bills, right? Exactly. Similar dynamic. Yeah. So that might be the the big avenue for this to actually come about is, you know, the Sullivan ban gets struck down by the court. Well, a lot of these states that have them are not going to sure seems they're not going to just comply with what the court wants and they'll try to find some way around the specific letter of the ruling as they've done with the Bureau response bills. And that's when you might see the go safe acts pop up around California and Massachusetts and yeah. places like that. So uh, we'll keep an eye on it though. That's, uh, that's all we've got for this week. Um, you know, if you enjoy our reporting, if you want to support the shoe leather journalism that, it's not inexpensive to go and fly up to Manhattan uh, and stay in, uh, you know, uh, the cheapest hotel I could find in Chinatown. But actually, it was still quite nice and easy walk. But so I got lucky on that. But it was not cheap. That's what I'll say. The bottom line: this kind of reporting is expensive. Um, and the only way, reason that I can do it, the only reason I can go and be in New York and watch these trials. Um, in person and give you these because these are this is not live stream this you don't get transcripts of what happens there so the only way to really have a feel for it is to be in the courtroom and so the only reason i can do that is because of the support of reload members they make it possible you know like it would not happen without the reload members that we have already and it won't be possible in the future if we don't grow as well and, and that's how we'll be able to expand and, and bring you more stories from uh, uh, all over the country if we can grow the size of our membership. So you should head over and check out our membership options today at thereload.com. And, you know, it's not just a way of supporting our work. You also get value out of it. Um, you get access to hundreds of pieces of analysis. You know, our, we try to keep our reporting free for everyone. We try to make that uh something of a public service you know people can go and read my story on on trump's uh speech to the nra or they can read about the closing arguments in the nra trial uh, without being a reload member but you won't get the deeper insights of our analysis pieces what what this all means where things are going you won't hear any of that if you aren't a reload member uh so there is real value there as well in my opinion and uh so yeah, go and check out the options. You also, of course, get this show a day early. You'll get to listen to the podcast before anybody else. And you'll have the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment. Uh, we've done dozens of those over the course of this, this podcast. And I'm hopefully we'll do dozens more as we go forward because I enjoy doing those. It's good to meet and hear from the people who are supporting this sort of work. Uh, but if you don't have the ability to buy a membership right now, you can support us by giving us a like or sharing this podcast with anyone you think would enjoy it. That's tremendously helpful. Um, you can of course leave a rating wherever you're listening to this, uh, whatever podcast app you're using. 
And all of that will help us as well. And of course, you can sign up for a free newsletter. You'll still get access to a lot of valuable information that you won't find anywhere else. Um, but that's that's my big pitch to you guys after this, uh, this bit of a marathon uh, episode where we got into some on the ground reporting. But uh, that's all we've got for you this week. We will back. Be back. <laughs> we will be back again real soon.